Our first topic is entitled Revelations for Horsemen, and we're going to be taking a look at why are there so many different denominations. And before we begin, let's go ahead and bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much for this day. We want to thank you, Lord, for your holy word uh, that we can come together in study, Lord, in freedom. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that you would draw us each closer to you, Lord. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's suppose that you are a new Christian and that you've just moved to a new city and you want to go to a church, but you don't know anybody in the area, so you don't have any recommendations as to which church to go to. So you get the bright idea to look up churches on Google, or maybe you do it the old-fashioned way and you whip out the phone book and you start looking through the church section. There you would find all different types of churches. You'd find Catholic churches. You'd find Baptist churches. You'd find Anglican churches. You'd find Christian science, Lutheran, Methodist. The list goes on and on. There are thousands of different denominations, and the average person is bewildered by this confusing array of churches. And understandably so, right? But the key to selecting a church is that you shouldn't go to a church to find out the truth. Instead, you should go to what? You should go to the Bible, God's Word, to find out what truth is. And then you find a church that is teaching in harmony with the Bible. Because if you had to search the teachings of every church, it would take an absolute lifetime, friends. And uh, we just don't have that much time on this earth, do we? We want to study God's word, go straight to the source. Because all churches say, we have the truth. There is not one church out there that says, well, we've got 60% of the truth, come to our church. Right? They all say, we have 100% of the truth, so come, come in and listen to what we have to say. So the question we want to answer tonight is, why are there so many different denominations? And to understand why, we must first take a look at history. And amazingly, Bible prophecy actually reveals the history of the Christian church. And that history helps us to see why there are so many different denominations. So let's begin tonight in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Here we see how God operates in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. This is how he has chosen to communicate to us uh, as fallen humanity. Here the Bible says this, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, who? The prophets. prophets. So God has chosen to communicate through his prophets. Uh, That's how he communicates to his people is through prophets. And we see clearly throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that God would reveal things to the prophets to to give to his people. And we've seen thus far in our seminar that God chose to reveal things to Daniel, right? Daniel the prophet, we looked at the prophecies in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel 7 and 8. Uh, we've also seen that God chose to reveal things to the apostle John, who was given the gift of prophecy. And that's where we're going to be this evening, is in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, John wrote about an amazing vision of four horsemen that gallop through the sky. And we're going to take a look at that. And in this vision of the four horsemen, God has revealed the future of Christianity more clearly than in in any other place in the Bible. And Revelation's four horsemen represent four successive ages in the history of the church. I'll explain further here. It begins in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. The first seal is found there. It says, John writes, Now I, John, 
I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. So here we see Jesus, the Lamb of God. He is the one who opens the first seal of history because Jesus is the Lamb, right? He's, the Bible says he is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation chapter 6, 2 continues. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So here we see that this first period of church history is represented by a white horse. And the one that's uh, riding the horse is wearing a crown. And, he, and, and this rider represents Jesus. And he goes out conquering and to conquer. Now, white is a symbol of purity, isn't it? Yeah. It was back in Bible times, and it's still a symbol of purity in our world today. When a Roman general conquered the, an enemy um, kingdom uh, or barbarians, he would return back to his hometown triumphantly riding on a white horse. And so the New Testament church would have understood this kind of uh, symbolism. So the rider on the white horse has a bow in his hand because the church was on the offensive against the enemies of truth. Not that it was fighting against the enemies of truth, but they were dispelling the darkness with truth. So the white horse represents a powerful and pure faith, which is a description, a good description of the first century church because God's truth was triumphing. And the New Testament church turned the world upside down with the gospel. And so from AD 31 to AD 100, the disciples were powerfully preaching the good news of the gospel, and Christianity was spreading like wildfire. Churches were raised up all throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, one Roman writer wrote this. He said, you Christians are everywhere. You are in our armies, in our navies. navies. You are in the marketplace and, and the shops. You are in our senate and universities. You are everywhere. Friends, it is amazing to see how quickly Christianity spread in that first century. Christians were going everywhere, making a difference for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 5, verse 14 describes this rapid growth. It says, and the, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So tens and thousands of people were getting baptized. They were accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and dedicating their lives fully to him. It was a very exciting time for the New Testament church. But unfortunately, we see that some Christians were martyred for their faith. As we read through the book of Acts, we see that the first martyr was who? It was Stephen, that's right, and others followed. But as they were martyred, others stepped out to follow Christ, and they were inspired by the faithfulness of the martyrs. And so more continued to join the church. But, and praise God, friends, that nothing could stop the progress of Christianity in the first century. The power of the gospel just could not be stopped. And friends, that's what happens when believers fully surrender and when believers fully give their hearts to the Lord. The church has power and it focuses on the great commission that God has given to it. But unfortunately today in our world, we see that many churches are more like social clubs these days and, and, and they've lost their power. And friends, it's because there is so much compromise in the church, and that's the reason why many churches are empty today. When, and when the church compromises, it loses the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And when the church turns to tradition, when it turns truth into tradition, when the church turns the word of God into fables, the church loses the blessings of God. That's why Paul encouraged the believers here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. He said, Continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. So here we see that God wants us as Christians to be grounded in the faith. He wants us to be steadfast in the word and in the doctrines of Jesus. He continues, he says, Don't move away from the hope of the gospel which you heard and was preached to how many people? To every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So friends, the gospel went like fire in the stubble. It was going everywhere. Everywhere the torch of truth was burning brightly. Thousands and thousands were converted. And this made the devil absolutely furious. So he had to do something and he had to do it. He knew that he had to do it quickly. And so the prophetic picture changes. The second seal opens and a red horse gallops across the sky. Revelation chapter 6, 4 describes this. It says, Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a what? A great sword. So here we see that there is a fiery red horse that gallops across the sky and he has a great sword. So Satan saw that he could not stop the church. It was triumphing everywhere. And so Satan had to do something. And so he began a a fierce era of bloody persecution. He influenced political leaders to viciously persecute the Christians. Christians were taken to the Colosseum during this time and they were thrown to the lions. And Eusebius, he was an early church writer, a church historian. Uh, He wrote about the church in the first century and he said this. He He said, we saw the most marvelous inspiration, a force which was truly divine, and the readiness of those who had faith in the Christ of God. Immediately when sentence had been pronounced on one group, another party came before the tribunal acknowledging themselves as Christians. And remaining unmoved, before dangers and torments of all kinds. Indeed, they reasoned with joy the final sentence of death. They sang hymns and offered thanksgiving to God of all until when? Until their last breath. Friends, they were faithful to God to the very end. Amen? They were singing and praising God until the very end. So as the white horse represents a church with apostolic power and purity, a church with pure faith, a triumphant church, so the red horse represents a blood-stained church. And so from A.D. 100 to A.D. 313, the Christians were terribly persecuted. But the church continued to grow. Amen? One early church writer by the name of Tertullian wrote this. He said, the more we are mown down, that is, the more we are persecuted by you, the more we grow, the blood of Christians is seed. So Satan persecuted the church, but he could not stop it. Amen? Amen. Then we see the third seal opens and a third horse gallops across the sky. Revelation 6, 5 describes it like this. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, what color of a horse? a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. So during this black horse time period of church history, Satan 
had a new method that he wanted to introduce, and that was he wanted to introduce compromise into the church. He figured if you can't beat them by persecuting them, you should join them. And so he joined the church. His master strategy worked to bring pagan practices into the Christian church. And just as the white horse represented truth and purity, the black horse represents error and compromise. But what about the pair of scales that is in the writer's hand? Well, the pair of scales represents a church judged in the balances and found wanting of God. This black horse period represents the period in church history from AD 313 to AD 538. And during this time, the faith of many was compromised. The Apostle Paul was very concerned about compromise even back in his day. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul said this to the leaders of the Christian church. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, that is, after my death, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul wrote this back in the first century, during the white horse time period, where, where things were more pure. Um, and then in the next century, we see that savage wolves did indeed come and persecute the church. But then notice what Paul adds. He says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. So Paul says that there is a time that is coming when religious leaders would arise and they would draw people to themselves instead of to Christ. They would speak perverse and crooked things. And during this time, the church became very large and very powerful. But it, would, it, it was a compromised faith. The teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings... Sorry, the teachings of men would be substituted... Sorry, the teachings of God would be substituted for the teachings of men during this time. I don't know if I had that right. Teachings. Okay, maybe we had that, we had that wrong on there. You guys know what I mean? <laughs> they weren't following God during this time. <laughs> we'll switch that around for next time. Human tradition would take the place of the Bible, and we see that that took place indeed. The Bible describes it in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. It describes what this little horn power would do. It says, and he cast truth to the ground, and he did all this, and, did, and what? And he prospered. He cast truth to the ground, yet he was still prospering. And during this black horse time period, during the fourth and fifth centuries, truth was indeed cast to the ground. Church history re reveals that this prophecy is indeed true. In the development of Christian doctrine, page 372, it says this, we are told by Eusebius, that is a, a church historian, we are told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, he transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own religion. So after Constantine became a nominal Christian, that is a Christian in name only, he tried to make Christianity more appealing to the heathen. And so he decided to unite church and state, and therefore he transferred the outward ornaments from paganism, and he transferred them into the Christian church. So during this time period, simple faith was replaced. It was replaced with pagan practices like lighting of candles and bowing down before images and worshiping the saints, and relics came into the church as well. These practices were virtually unknown in the early Christian church, but since Satan could not destroy the church through persecution, he got the church to compromise 
the truth. And he was very, very successful at it. Salvation through Christ was replaced by the requirements of the church. And it became salvation by works, salvation by doing penances and good deeds. So what else happened during this time of compromise? Well, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says, And he, that is the little horn power, the papacy, shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and laws. Now, we've seen in previous presentations throughout our series that God's law was written, how? It was written with his own finger, right? On tables of stone given to Moses. We've also seen that the Church of the Dark Ages attempted to change the very law of God. They went ahead and they just removed the second commandment out of the ten. Then they went ahead and they split the tenth commandment into two. And that's how, we still, and that's how the Catholic Church still has ten commandments. They just split thou shalt not covet into two. But this is what the second commandment actually says, according to the Bible, friends. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So God knew that if, we, if people would kneel down to these images, that these images would eventually take the place of God himself. Then the holiness that should be given to God alone would be given to these images. But in the compromise period of the black horse, images from paganism were brought into the Christian church. Let me give you an example of this. This, is, this statue is in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So who would you think that this individual is? Most people would say it's Peter, right? But what most people don't know is that this statue is actually the pagan god Jupiter. And it was renamed, it was renamed Peter when it was brought into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome to make the worship of Christ more appealing to the pagans. During this time, the, the same time period, the church introduced the idea that saints were living in heaven, and they made images to those saints on a massive scale. Another way that the Roman church state sought to make Christianity more popular with the heathen and the pagans was to change the day of worship, and we've looked at this extensively. They changed the day of worship from the Sabbath to the pagans' Sunday, the day of the sun. And there is plenty of historical evidence to prove it. Let's look at what History of the Eastern Church says here on page 184. It says, The retention of the old pagan name, Dies Solis, for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. Here's another quote. It's from the Doctrinal Catechism, page 174. Here's uh, what a Catholic author, Stephen Keening, says. Uh, he says, question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? Answer, had she not such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day of the week, a change for which there is how much scriptural authority? No. No scriptural authority. 
So Stephen Cannon here makes the issue plain. The church attempted to change the very law of God. And he makes, he makes this plain. And as a result, we see that idol worship came into the church. We see that Sunday worship came into the church. And uh, these things were more acceptable to the pagans. And so the pagans also came into the church, bringing even more things with them. So here we see during this black horse time period that the church grew very large and it grew very popular and very powerful, but it lost its true power. Then a fourth seal opens and a pale horse comes onto the scene of history. The Bible says this in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. And, the, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So during this period known as the Dark Ages, which lasted from five, approximately 538 onward until 1798, the church grew very large. It built great cathedrals that cost, you can't put a price tag on, on some of these. They, they, it took hundreds of years to build some of them. But there, but there was persecution of true Bible-believing Christians at this time. Church and state were united, and the church was spiritually dead. It was spiritually bankrupt. Here's an amazing statement here from Church History Century 2. It says, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. And that is a very accurate description. Baptized paganism happens when you take idols and you bring them into the Christian church. When you baptize the idol of Jupiter and you rename it to St. Peter, that would be baptized paganism. When you take Isis or Venus and you call them the Virgin Mary, that would be baptized paganism. When you substitute the pagan day of the sun for the Bible Sabbath, that would be baptized paganism. So we see that the pale horse of the fourth seal represents a dead faith, a dead Christianity. So let's review the four horses that we have so far. We have the white horse representing a pure apostolic faith. Then we have a red horse which represented a bloodstained faith, a persecuted church. Then there was the black horse which represented a compromised uh, faith. And then the pale horse which represented a dead faith. During this pale horse period, the church continued down the steps of compromise. We see that traditions took the place of God's word, penances took the place of the grace of Christ, indulgences were introduced, and people could now buy their way out of purgatory and into heaven itself. Image worship came into the church. People worshiped the saints and they would pray to them. Then the church hierarchy substituted the sun's day for the Bible Sabbath. Human dogmas were replaced by the clear teachings of God's word. And for centuries, God's truth was cast down. But thankfully, friends, God has always had faithful believers. Amen? Even during the Dark Ages. However, because of persecution, many of God's people had to go into hiding at this time. One of those groups was the Waldensian Christians. They were Bible-believing Christians that lived in northern Italy and in southern France. But the popular church of the day hated these people and they, they hunted them down and persecuted them. Many were even thrown off of cliffs. 
And so they fled to the mountains of the Alps. And here, here's a hidden Waldensian village up in the mountains. I've actually been here. Um, some of the remnants of this village were, are, are still present today, obviously. I went there three summers ago with my wife, and we got to see this. It was, it was pretty amazing. This is where men and women stood faithful to God um, during the Dark Ages. This is a, a Bible school where the Waldensian young people would study God's word. It's called the College of the Barbs. And here's a Bible copyist table where the Waldensians would copy the Bible by hand. They wanted to pass the word of God along to their children. And so they also sent their young people uh, down to the great universities of Europe to be missionaries. And the mothers would sew pockets in the clothing of their young people so that they would have a spot where they could hide pages of scripture. And uh, these young Waldensian missionaries would go to school and they would, they would pass out scripture to, to different people and they would put it in places where people would find it. They were literature evangelists. They were spreading the word of God and revivals broke out all throughout Europe. But the popular church leaders of the day could not find out where these Bible manuscripts were coming from. And so, friends, by God's grace, the Waldensians restored the truth of the Bible and the Bible only. Hundreds of years before the Reformation, they possessed the Bible in their own language, and they inspired others to put their faith and trust in God's word. Then God began to raise up a variety of other men and women. In the late 1300s, there was a man by the name of John Huss in Prague, Czechoslovakia. He was a Catholic priest, and he began to study the Bible. And as he studied it, he declared, Obedience to God is my motto, not obedience to man. And as a result of his teaching, Huss was burned at the stake in the town square of Constance, Germany. Here's a memorial there in Constance, marking the very spot that he was burned. And uh, this is a spot that we went on our Reformation tour just a few years ago. Huss was a very courageous man, a man of faith. A life, his life was dedicated to the Lord. And friends, I believe with the Waldensians that the Bible and the Bible only should be our rule of faith. Amen? not the traditions of the church. I believe with John Huss that obedience to God should be our only motto. How about you? Then God raised up another Catholic priest in the early 1500s, a man by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther struggled with issues of faith and he decided to visit Rome. He went on a pilgrimage there. He climbed the famed pilot staircase on his knees. And like many pilgrims still do today, he thought that when he would reach the top, that he would find peace with God. But instead, he found no peace. And when he returned home, he still felt the guilt of his sins, the oppression of his guilt. He sensed the guilt was crushing out his life. All the requirements of the church could not take away his sin. All of the penances, all of the, the beating, beating of himself, it wouldn't take away his, the sense of his condemnation. All and then he read this as he got access to the Bible in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said, he read, the just shall live by what? Faith. Then he read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He also read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He saw Jesus again in a fresh light, now as a mighty Savior. Luther was amazed by the Word of God, and he experienced new peace 
in his life. And then he went to the door of Wittenberg and he nailed his 95 theses on that front door. 95 reasons why salvation is by grace and why indulgences are not scriptural. And before long, God was using him to witness to the leaders of the church states, declaring to them that salvation comes by grace through faith. Friends, I believe with Martin Luther that salvation comes not by works of our hands, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Amen? I believe that salvation comes only by grace through faith. And we praise God that the light of truth started to penetrate the darkness of the dark ages. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 18 says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. When the sun shines in the morning, when it rises in the morning, does God just throw on the cosmic switch and the sun comes on in full brightness? No, it does not, right? The sun rises slowly and it chases away the darkness. Have you ever been in a dark room and walked out into the sunshine? What happens? You're blinded, right? It's hard to see because your eyes haven't adjusted. It takes a while to adjust to the light. And just as it took 500 years for the church to go from the white horse of the pure apostolic faith to the pale horse of spiritual deadness, it took time for God's faithful followers to grasp the glimpses of truth lost sight of down through the ages. So God didn't turn on the light and have all the truths come to our minds all at once. God gradually began to restore the truth little by little. But the reason why there are so many different denominations is because the Waldensians, they stopped where they were. They said the Bible and the Bible only is truth, but then they didn't keep studying the doctrines of the Bible. The Hussites said obedience to God, but they didn't keep on going. The Lutherans said salvation is by faith, but Martin Luther has it all. So they didn't keep moving on in truth. God raised up these good and great men who had light, but not, not one of them had complete truth. They didn't have all the lights at that time. And eventually the Waldensians, they camped around one of their leaders by the name of Peter Waldo. The Hussites camped out around John Huss, and the Lutherans camped out around Martin Luther. Then in the 1500s, God raised up another man, a man by the name of John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. And he said, we need organization in the Christian church, and we need discipline in the Christian life, and that God calls us to growth in grace. And they called his followers Calvinists or Presbyterians. But each church did not realize that each group was like a building block, that each group was gradually restoring the truth of God's word. But John Robertson, John Robinson understood this principle. He was a pastor of the Puritan pilgrims who sailed on the Mayflower to the New World. He wasn't able to make the journey himself, but he admonished them in these words. He said, if God should reveal anything to you, by any other instrument of his, that is, any other true reform movement, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of my ministry. For I am very confident that the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. Speaking of other reformers such as Luther and Calvin, 
he continued to say this. He said, They were burning and shining lights in their time, yet they penetrated not into the whole counsel of God. But were they now living, would be as willing to embrace further lights as that which they first received. So God was leading the church over a period of centuries until further truth would be restored by a final body of believers at the end of time. This movement would build on the shoulders of the reformers, the Protestant Reformation, but it would go beyond the reformers. It would continue to restore truths that were lost during this time of the compromised church. Friends, did you know that Martin Luther still believed in sprinkling babies? And uh, infant baptism was still part of his creed, but that's obviously not in the Bible, is it? It took the Baptist or the Anabaptist movement to restore this truth of Bible baptism. This is what it says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus said, this is a great commission to us. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe how many things? All things that I have commanded to you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. So here we see there was a great commission, but thankfully there was a great promise. Amen? And that promise was that God would be with us always, even to the very end. He would be with us as we go out and share our faith with others. And Jesus said, when, when you go out and when you share the truth with others, and when they accept that truth, and when they accept the Son, when they accept Jesus to baptize them when they accept the truths of God's word. But the Lutherans said, well, Martin Luther didn't teach baptism by immersion, so we're not going to do that. But do you see what God was doing? He was leading the church along. So in a sense, I'm a Waldensian because I believe in the Bible and the Bible only. In a sense, I'm a Hussite because I believe in obedience to God. In a sense, I'm a Lutheran because I believe in salvation by grace. In in a sense, I'm a Presbyterian because I accept the Bible truth about church organization and Christian growth. In a sense, I'm a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. But I reject all the errors of these churches. And I accept all the truths of their creeds because all of these creeds, all these different belief systems have some truth, right? Or God... (laughs) Because if they didn't, no one would subscribe to it, right? So God would have us accept the truth, yet reject the errors. Then in the 1700s, God raised up another man by the name of John Wesley. And John Wesley was an amazing man of God. Um, Wesley saw that the standards of the church were decaying. And so he saw that amusements and pleasures were coming in and practices of the world were entering the church. And so God raised up John Wesley and showed him that people were to live holy and righteous lives. Friends, I believe in holiness. I believe that the church should be separate from the world. Amen? I believe that if you are a Christian, you should look and act like a Christian. You should talk like a Christian. You should eat like a Christian. And you should go places that Christians go. I believe that God is calling us to the high standards of Jesus Christ. And the good news, friends, is that God has power to change our lives. Amen? Amen. We are to be lights in the darkness of this world. But friends, you you cannot light the darkness if you are like the darkness. There was another long lost sight of truth that needed to be restored still, and that was the truth about the second coming of Jesus. Close to the mid-1800s, God raised up a 
a preacher by the name of William Miller, and he proclaimed the soon coming of Jesus. At the time, the church had largely neglected the truth of our Lord's return, and at the time, uh, God raised up this whole new movement called Adventists, or Millerites. And Adventists were called Adventists because they believed that Jesus was coming soon. And so, friends, I'm an Adventist because I, too, believe that Jesus is coming soon. How many of you can raise your hand tonight and say, I believe Jesus is coming soon? Amen. Then you are all Adventists. Amen? You are all Adventists. But there is one important biblical truth that had not yet been restored. And that was the truth that leads us to obey the commandments of God out of love. And that the seventh-day Sabbath is still a memorial of God's creative authority. Then Christ would raise up a last-day movement that would finally restore the truth of all of God's Ten Commandments in a time of commandment-breaking. A last-day movement that would take seriously the instructions of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So in the last days, truth would be restored. God would restore truth little by little. And we see that he restored the truth that we should have the Bible instead of the church dogmas. That we should have Jesus instead of earthly priests. Grace instead of works. The law of God instead of religious tradition. The Sabbath instead of Sunday. Baptism, the way Jesus was baptized, by immersion instead of sprinkling. Resurrection instead of the pagan concept of the immortal soul, which came into the church. The second coming that ushers in Jesus' eternal kingdom instead of an earthly kingdom. Friends, Jesus would have a last day movement outlined in the book of Revelation. His last day movement would accept all the truths of the denominations that had gone before it, yet reject the errors. His message would go to the ends of the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The Bible says in Revelation 14, 6 and 7, it's a familiar passage to us in our series thus far. It says, Then I, John, saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now this everlasting gospel is the same gospel of the white horse time period of church history. It's the gospel of the New Testament. And by God's strength and by God's power, it will go to every people group on the planet. Amen? Amen. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. So at the time of God's judgment hour, God would call all of humanity back to the completeness of of the truth of his word. God would call all humanity back to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. God would call everyone back to worship the creator God and to serve him alone. He would call them back to the Bible Sabbath as a symbol of God's creative power. And friends, in an age of evolution, God would restore the truth about creation, that God indeed created the world in six literal days, just as the Bible said. So God would have a people that would treasure the truths that were lost during those dark ages. The Bible's last book, the book of Revelation, identifies God's end-time group of people. Revelation chapter 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. 
Friends, God wants us to be among this group. Amen? Because God wants us to be a called out people. A people from every nation, from every race, from every language. A called out people. And he is calling us out today. So in a sense, I am a Waldensian because I believe in the Bible and the Bible only. In a sense, I am a Hussite because I believe in obedience to God as their only motto. In a sense, I'm a Lutheran because I believe that salvation is by grace through faith. In a sense, I'm a Presbyterian because I believe that the org- in the organization of the church as taught by the Bible. In a sense, I'm a Baptist because I believe in baptism by immersion. In a sense, I'm a Methodist because I believe that God has called us to live holy lives. And I'm an Adventist because I believe in the soon second coming of Jesus. And friends, I am a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe that the Bible Sabbath is still important. And I believe God has a movement in these last days that is calling men and women back to faithfulness to God. Friends, tonight God is doing something amazing. He is gathering people to his last day movement all around the world. And all around the world, people are accepting God's truth. They're walking into the waters of baptism. They're following Christ. They do not want a denomination that's based on man's teachings. They, they don't want to come only partway out of air. They want to come all the way. They want to go all the way with Jesus. And friends, that is what I would encourage each and every one of us to do. Go all the way with Jesus. Walk into his truth. Friends, I believe that God has brought us all here to these meetings for a reason. Because he's wanting to teach us. Amen? He's wanting to guide us in these last days. He's wanting us to have a deeper walk with him than ever before. And he's brought us here because he wants us to walk in his ways. Tonight, by show of hands, how many of you would like to go all the way with Jesus? Is that your desire? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen that throughout history, you have guided your people. And Lord, we are so grateful for your guidance. And uh, we thank the Lord that you raised up men and women of faith, Lord, during each time period of church history, Lord, people that were faithful to you, Lord, people that copied the scriptures down by hand to preserve it for us until this time. Lord, we thank you for those that have gone before us. Thank you for the truths that they stood for. Lord, thank you that many were willing to even die for their faith. Thank you, Lord, that you were there with them, that you promised to never leave them nor forsake them. And Lord, you've made that same promise to us today, living in the 21st century, Lord, 2018. Lord, we believe your coming is soon. And Lord, we believe that you have been gradually revealing truth to your people. And Lord, we want to follow all the truth that you have for us in these last days. Lord, help us to be men and women of the word. Help us, Lord, to, to look to you always, Lord, for truth. Lord, help us to not look to, to pastors or to, to evangelists and, and, and people that we see on TV, Lord, but help us to look to you. Help us to look to your word. Help us to make sure that all of these things are according to your word. And Father, we thank you so much that you will continue that work that you've started in our lives. Lord, help us live lives that are pleasing to you in these last days. Lord, the world wants to suck us in. The world wants to get us completely on a detour, Lord, to to accept the things and the practices of this world. But Lord, help us to realize that we as Christians want to be like you. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to behold you each and every day and that you would change us, Lord, from the inside out. Bless each one of us, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.